1: The interview you'll hear today was recorded on June 28th, 2023.
2: Light diffuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny. And he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it.
1: Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. You want Mission Impossible stuff, you know where to come, and that's right here. I am Drew Taylor, joined, as always, by the just absolute star
0: that is Charles Hood. How you doing, Charles? I'm great. You know, we really are. We're like the hoarders of Mission Impossible stuff. Yes. And and, and, pre- and presenters of Mission Impossible stuff.
1: We are. We're not keeping it for ourselves,
0: no, we're no, giving
1: it back to the world. You know what I'm saying?
0: Oh yeah, we're out there dishing it out,
1: dishing it, slinging it, cutting it up, grilling it up, adding a little <laughs> avocado. Boom! It's to you. I do love a little bit of avocado, or a lot. Give me it all, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hashtag legalize avocados. Now, Charles, this <laughs> week we have a favorite, a man who has appeared on the show almost as much as we have so far. Simon Pegg.
0: Yes, Simon Pegg returns. This is uh, quite an honor to have him on the show again. Uh, we recorded this after we saw the movie at the premiere in Rome, and after Simon saw it for the first time. If you remember, our last interview with him was before he had seen Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So you know, we talked a little bit about the process of shooting, but we didn't get into his thoughts on the movie because he hadn't seen it. So today we get into a lot of great stuff, and I can't wait for you to hear it, and uh, yeah, we'll have more to talk about afterwards. Uh, Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to discuss, Drew? Well, no, I'm very excited that he's
1: back. I'm glad that we got into some detail on this movie, but before we dive in to Simon, I want to remind everyone to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 exclusively in theaters now, and also tell folks that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is available to buy on digital October 10th from your favorite digital retailer, and on 4K Ultra HD, Blu-ray and DVD on October 31st. So not only will there be ghouls and goblins, Charles, but there'll be Ethan Hunt running around.
0: going into your Blu-ray player. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. (laughs) Uh, Very exciting. Yes. Uh, Happy Halloween to to us all. Shall uh, Shall we get into Simon Pegg now? Let's get on into it, brother.
1: Let's talk about the airport sequence. You get a big moment there, and I was wondering what that was like. I'm certain that it went through many iterations, given that is kind of the process, but talk us through that sequence.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we shot at the the new terminal in Abu Dhabi, which was amazing because we had the entire place to ourselves. You know, it's not open yet, so we had, usually if you work in an abandoned or, or an empty airport, or whatever. It's usually because it's it's been abandoned and it's not in use anymore. This was a completely ultra modern new airport that we had the entire run of, which was great. We were having to shoot in COVID times, so we had to make 150 people look like a thousand plus, which they did really well. And then I shot in the baggage handling area, which was incredible. I mean, it was like Toy Story Two. The <laughs> you know the, the network of kind of conveyor belts and ladders. It was. Ins- I mean, it was vast totally. I mean, just gobsmacking. And then we rebuilt part of the airport back at Long Cross and I shot all the bomb defusal stuff in Long Cross. And that was, we must have come back to it maybe three or four times just to finesse it. Uh, first, the bomb asked Benji some really quite, some personal questions that the test audience found disturbing. Really? Go on. Yeah. They didn't want to hear Benji talking about you know, because cause McHugh had had this idea that Benji was suffering a little bit from PTSD because of what happened in Fallout, and the the, the sort of psychological profiling that the bomb was doing on Benji really really upset the audience. So we changed it. Wow. We, there was a question. There was a question about Benji. I won't say. I won't go into it because <laughs> people. Will, I think it will make people upset. But um, oh my god, we have
1: to. We have to know. It was. It-, it
2: was. A, it was a standard psychological question when you you know, when you interview someone who has been admitted to a facility for mental health, you ask them, have you thought about harming yourself or others? And, um, and that's when Benji says no. And, and, and the bomb says you're lying. So Benji has to admit to yes.
0: Wow. That is intense. Wow. Yeah.
2: And I think the audience found that just a little unpleasant. So we changed that question to, are you afraid of death? And I think with Benji's kind of, who isn't? It became a bit more, you know, just a little bit more palatable, I guess, for the audience.
1: Wow. So talk about the evolution of it, though. So it it, it was always the bomb asking you questions. It was always the kind of Robert Langdon cryptics uh, device, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, this was the entity starting to try and infiltrate the IMF, you know, and try and sort of get personal information on us and um, see how we... Respond under pressure, this kind of stuff, and that was always the that was always and obviously and recording my, my my voice as well, which it uses later on to uh to fool ethan so that that was always the the aim of the moment, yeah
1: oh yeah, I didn't even think see this is another thing that I would recognize if we went and saw it again was that he was recording you that's yeah, it was recording you we should we do, we don't i need to gender the uh the entity
2: yeah i love i love the fact that the entity is like the ultimate IMF agent and that, you know, the IMF traditionally is all about subterfuge and sort of um, fooling its enemies, like the way the IMF sets up situations and people think that they're in a a hospital or whatever or a hotel room and really it's just a big set and the whole idea of masks. It's like a supersized version of the IMF, which is what's so terrifying about us coming against it.
1: Wow, that's great. I mean, you have experience battling AI. I mean, you've battled AI many years ago.
2: Oh, I'm always battling AI. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I spent my life battling AI. I
1: love that. Well, obviously, you know, there were reports that the movie was was super long before. Were there any were there any bits of Benji action that you wish were still in this cut?
2: I did a lot of um, driving the boat in Venice. There was a lot of you know, uh, driving around the canals. I'd like to, when, when, when Benji takes off to find Ethan, there was footage of him kind of looking for him. And, uh, that was the first thing I shot actually. And also we had to shoot because in the, um, the sequence when Benji pulls up after the bridge fight, it was such a quick stop. And I just wasn't skilled enough to do that. So, um, Wade, our stunt coordinator drove the boat and I stood on the other side. And then in, in post we flipped it so that I was driving and they, they painted Wade out. But when, <laughs> when I came up on, on the scene, I, Benji just sort of sits down in the boat out of, you know, just horror at what he's seeing. And I, I, I'm, I I was sad that that wasn't in there. Cause that was my, I've always felt Benji's relationship with Ilsa is really complex. He was very suspicious of her at first. He never really trusted her. I think he was a bit jealous of her as well. And, um, but, through what happened in fallout, I always felt like Benji had a great sort of affection for her and it was really hard shooting those the the, the, the subsequent scenes to try and pitch the degree of loss you know because we couldn 't really dwell on it as much as it was such a such a seismic event. When we when we actually spent time showing how upset they were, it made the film sort of come to a stop. Mm. And the reason it works so well at the length that it's at is that it never never stops. You never feel the length, you know.
1: So did Benji have a, a kind of a a moment where he memorialized her or something?
2: Well, I think when I was sat, they do it so well. Like, bet when 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 they get on with it again, and Luther starts to tell Grace about the mission, and Benji sort of wipes the tears from his eyes and sort of walks out. Uh That was it. But there was a lot of kind of, I don't know. It's hard when you lose a character like that. You want to make sure that it hits hard, but you can't at the same time, you know, the mission has to be the mission in the film and the mission of making the film has to be the thing that you prioritize. But, um, yeah, it was a weird one. Obviously, you know, Rebecca's like one of my best friends and there was a double, a double sort of thing going on there. And that, you, we'd lost Ilsa, but we'd also lost Rebecca. So it was quite easy to play the sadness.
0: Right. It's it's really interesting to think about that, the Benji-Ilsa relationship and how far it came, because it starts with you... Yeah, well, in Rogue Nation, like questioning her, and she tried to shoot you. You feel like, and you thought she was, she was trying to kill you. And then, yeah, and then yeah, the climax of Fallout is like this great. It's like a you the. I love the climax of Fallout. It's so incredible how all the team is involved, but in particular, Ilsa and Benji are kind of a a buddy duo in that in that finale.
2: Yeah, I mean, she saves his life, and they work together. The way she throws him the bottle to try and cut the rope, and. You know, I think what she does for him there, she brings him back. Yeah, you know, he he would have been forever. Any kind of lasting doubt he had about her uh, before would have been completely gone. I always th- I always like to play as being jealous because I th- you know obviously Benji is is like he wants to be Ethan's right hand man, and then suddenly he's got this new friend and he doesn't like her. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Do you come into these movies with, like, a set of things that you would really love to see Benji accomplish or perform? Or it, do you have, like, kind of, like, deeper character things that you say, oh, I want to explore his, you know, his backstory? Yeah, always. Okay.
2: I mean, I know McHugh always comes at us with that stuff. Like, there were scenes initially in the the the, the first sort of of script I saw, you know, it was a scene where Benji is driving and he pulls over and just bursts out crying. And it's because we were, we were sort of playing with this idea of, of Benji suffering from PTSD. Um, but in the end, that stuff, as, as much as Tom and McHugh drill down on character all the time, they're always quietly, well, everyone thinks it's all about the stunts. You know, that's the thing they're always really concentrating on. You have to then, you have to then hone that down to something which will serve the story rather than just the character. But I, I, I trust McHugh implicitly ever since I told you that story about Ghost Protocol when he rewrote Benji's ep- epic scene. Yeah. Uh, when he sort of swings in on a rope with a machine gun and it's like Benji would never do that. Benji has a part to play. He's a capable agent. You know, he's, he's been in a couple of dust ups and, and he's, he can conduct himself like an agent, even though his job is much more sort of technical. But for him to do stuff the kind of stuff Ethan does would just not ring true you wouldn't believe that suddenly Benji can do that stuff so i have to kind of temper my own ego with an understanding of my character of course i want to do some you know and and part 2 i, I will get to do some cool stuff but um people often ask me aren't oh, you don't you want to be involved in that in all the the, the high jinks and i'm like well i am i'm just behind a computer telling him where to go and I'm quite happy to be there.
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't get you don't get hurt behind a, behind a computer. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you you've played this character now for 5 movies. Obviously, 3 of them with McCory as director, but the, you have to feel some ownership over this character, I assume. I mean, are there times where when McCory comes to you with either script pages or an idea and you and you and you say like this is I, I don't see Benji doing that. Are saying that?
2: Not really. I, I joke with McHugh about you know uh, in my in, in the moments when I'm feeling the most kind of like left out of all the fun, I will say, "What can I do something other than just deliver exposition?" And he says, "Well, but you do it so well." <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 you know, when I think about it as being four films that I've done with McHugh because he came in and you know radically rewrote Ghost Protocol and. I work with him a lot on that. And so I feel like we've been together on this character ever since really Benji came into the field, which is where he really began when he became more sort of three-dimensional anyway. So I feel like we've we've sort of raised Benji together in a way.
1: We'll be back with more from Simon Pegg after the break. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a AM member FDIC. And
0: these movies, the way that they're made, they're so... Um... I mean, we we were just, it's so fascinating to us the way that a lot of movies are, you know, you write the script and then you go shoot the script. And this is like, it just it evolves. It's like a living organism. Um, and just wondering like how, how you like to work as an actor? Like, or, do you usually like to rehearse or like, is this, is this maddening to you to make a movie like this? Or is this freeing to you because you're not much, you don't, are you not a rehearsal kind of actor?
2: No, I like, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, me and Edgar, when we make a film, we, we, we write the script and then we'll rehearse for a couple of weeks with the other actors just to try and bring their own sort of input into it as much as we feel is necessary. And then we come to set with a full script, you know, and we shoot it because of the nature of how Edgar makes movies. You know, we are always very, very prepared. So this for me is at times a little counterintuitive, kind of but because I trust McHugh. And I've seen him do it again and again, sort of, you know, turn a crisis into an opportunity and, and let the locations sort of like inform the story a little bit. You just have to hold on and go for a ride. It's a different way of like often we'll, we'll, we'll shoot different readings of the lines so that when he's in the edit, he can pick the the right one for that moment. It's a much more, um, I wouldn't say it's chaotic in any way, because I feel like it's very, very considered what McHugh's doing, but he, he is a man that thrives in, a, you know, thrives at solving puzzles. He would much rather fix a bad script, I think, or, 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 or work this way than just sort of, I think he appreciates the process of filmmaking is an ongoing thing. The writing continues right into the edit, the writing continues. And I think to assume that, you know, a script is the end of the writing process is silly, because that's why you have deleted scenes, because once you get the visual language of the film in front of you, you realise that a look says more than an entire monologue sometimes, and so that monologue just goes. And I think with McHugh, he's sort of finding it on the way and understanding exactly what we have to do in the moment rather than predicting it. And so sometimes it can be daunting to get nine pages of dialogue in the morning of that of that day, Um. I tend to learn lines like, like lyrics from a song. I'm, I it's, I'm pretty good at it. If I can blow my own trumpet, I can learn lines pretty quickly. Um, so it suits me. For some for some actors, that it, that can be utterly, you know, terrifying. Just because some actors just like to live with the lines for a few weeks, months, even before they say them. But because I have complete faith in McHugh, I never I never worry too much about that at all because I know he would never sort of say, continue, which is what he says. He'll go, okay, now do it quieter and now do it more, slightly more intense. And then he'll say, continue. And as soon as he says, continue, I know that he's got the line reading he needs for the, uh, for the scene, you know? So it, it does come down to just how much I respect and trust McHugh. I think he's one of the, the greatest storytellers working at the moment. You know, his understanding of, of, of that is so acute you just know you're in safe hands.
1: Do you feel like you would ever take any of this approach into the movies that you make? Like, I know that you and Edgar are always threatening to make another movie um,
0: <laughs> together, but I mean, with, this is this
1: something that you would, that you would, uh, you know, bring into the things that you produce or write or or star in?
2: Well, I, I, I think because of, because Edgar's, you know, the transitions in Edgar's work are so sort of precise. You kind of, you do need to have that all, in advance, otherwise, you know, because he maps out the whole film, the way the scenes go into each other. I don't think you could make a uh, uh, an Edgar Wright movie in the way that we make Mission Impossible movies. That 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 way of doing things just wouldn't be conducive to making that kind of movie. I I would be. I mean, I don't think I, I don't think I could. I think it would be too stressful. It helps having Tom. You know, Tom is such a kind of obviously a, a force when it comes to getting stuff done and just being able to say to the studio no we need to do this again or we need to be here i don't think i have the the clout to to drive a film being made in this way to be honest
1: is it ever a sort of uh discombobulating especially with two movies that you're making sort of side by side
2: oh yeah of, okay <laughs> yeah. so i mean i the amount of times the the amount of times i say where am I, what, what's, where, where have I come from? And where am I going? <laughs> like the first, the first, the first day in Venice, I was literally driving this boat around the canals. McHugh was sat on the front of the boat saying, okay, say, I can't hear you. Say, uh, I'm losing you, Ethan. And I'm like, I had no idea why we were in Venice, <laughs> why I was in a boat, what the hell was going on. It was just, you know, you just have to kind of like, Hail Mary and do what McHugh says and trust that he knows what he wants.
0: When was the last Mission Impossible movie where you received a completed script <laughs> before shooting?
2: <laughs> uh, Rogue Nation. Okay. Wow. Okay. Although that
1: one went through a big cha- shift uh, with the climax though, right?
2: Oh, 100%. Like when we okay. shot the the plane, you know, the, the, the A400, we had no idea where in the film it was going. We didn't know if it was the, the climax of the movie or or what? And in the end, it kind of got, you know, they had such confidence in the, the film as a whole. They, they, they let it go at the very beginning of the film as a sort of mission statement, as it were, uh, opening. But, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think with Rogue Nation, we had like a script reading in Vienna, me, Tom, Rebecca and, and McHugh sat in a hotel room and it took us five hours to get to page 12. And I realized then that, 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 you know, there was two, Tom will always say, I don't get it. Like anytime he comes to a point in the script and he knows that the audience will be confused or will be, you know, he's got a brilliant sense of, of, of mass appeal and sophistication going hand in hand. So you can be smart and clever. You can write an interesting script, which requires interaction and, uh, you know, and thought. But at the same time, it, it doesn't have to be dense and, and sort of, um, difficult to understand by your basic, you know, multiplex crowd. So it took us five hours with Tom stopping, oh, hang on, I don't get it. And then, yeah, thereafter, it was much more like like it's been over the last two films. And the fact is it works. And, you know, the, the, the studio can't really complain about it because it always results in a really amazing movie. So they have to trust, the studio has to trust the process and understand that, that that's what it takes to make these films.
1: It seems like Tom can like almost astral project into the audience of the future. I mean, I, it, it is like kind <laughs> yeah. of an uncanny ability, right? To kind of understand yeah. the audience like that.
2: But he's, you know, he's he's the most accomplished. He's like a walking studio, Tom. I've said this before. He, he's he been around longer. He understands the business better than anyone really in the studio system because he's been there longer. Studio systems, studio regimes come and go. People are replaced People get fired, people get hired, and new people come in to try and invigorate the 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 you know the output, whatever. But Tom has just quietly been there since he was a teenager, understanding, learning, knowing the business, and you know he's just the most qualified person to to have a say in it already.
1: But you're also a sort of encyclopedic film lover. Do you, over the years, have you gotten to the point where you? Sit down in the morning before a shot and say, "Can you tell me about risky business?" <laughs> do, you, do you do you pepper him with those kind of questions?
2: Oh yeah, like I love it. I love like me and Ving and Tom. I remember we were doing the airport, the 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 the, the sort of um, departure lounge sequence when we were all sat around talking about the entity, and um, in between takes or in between setups, we'd just talk about. I, I remember getting the whole story about how Tom. Um, you know, hired De Palma, and the resistance to that from the studio because De Palma was kind of in, even though he'd done like Carlito's Way, I think he was still in movie jail because of Bonfire of the Vanities, and the studio were very resistant to De Palma. Tom was was utterly sure that he he wanted to work with him. You know, he he'd had dinner with him something, then he'd gone home and watched every De Palma film in one sitting. You know, that's just so Tom, <laughs> and uh, and also the evolution of Two and. And he's, always, he's, he's like Spielberg in that way in that he'll, he's very happy to talk about stuff if you ask him. He's not gonna sit there and kind of crow about it, but if you say, hey, tell me about that film being made, he will, and that's always, and he's got such great stories and he's a really good storyteller. Um, so it's always fun to kind of just dig a little bit and he'll, he'll sort of tell you the story of whatever film you wanna know about.
1: Yeah, I love that. We'll be back with more from Simon Pegg after the break. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
0: Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game,
1: headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty
0: of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international
1: competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning
0: Footy. We, we heard something from a Corey about um, something in part two that you had a great idea for. And I'm just wondering because obviously you're an amazing writer in your own right with Shaun of the Dead and the rest of the Coronado trilogy and going all, going all the way back to space. We love all of, all of these things. I'm just curious if there's we'll, we'll have to come back to the, the thing in part two. In a year or so, but is there anything else that has there been a time where, if it was a time crunch or whatever, where you had to kind of step in and write a line for Benji, or or, or any ideas that that you that you kind of threw in there that that ended up in one of these movies?
2: Oh, I mean, in the moment, often, particularly when I'm sort of directing Ethan, if ever, like a lot of those lines in the back of of the van when I'm uh, when he's running through London, all the stuff about the. The computer being, you know, upside down and and on 2D and all that stuff. That was kind of <laughs> came in the moment. And McHugh's always very keen to sort of to allow us to kind of bring a little something of ourselves to the character. He knows I've been playing Benji for a long time, but also I, what I love about McHugh is his kind of understanding of the story as a whole. And I mean, from 1996 until now, and I love his his embracing of the of the whole story. They were initially very self-contained films and that was kind of part of their appeal it was different director each time different vision but what McHugh's done in his sort of tenure which is the, the back half of the film series is that he's gone back and there's stuff like you know kittredge in this one or or Lo coming back for part two and then that's really fun and there's it's been fun to sort of offer up some some payoffs to to setups that happened you know 25 years ago uh that's that's really fun
1: as a film fan, who would you have liked to have seen direct one of your Mission Impossible's?
0: <sighs> living or living or dead could be anybody. Yeah, <laughs> has some voodoo going on that will bring people back. I'll, I'll bring bring back Hitchcock or Kubrick. Yeah,
2: it, sure. Well, I, I mean Spielberg would be a fun one, obviously. Just I, it's hard for me to imagine anyone but McHugh now because it's been such a long time. But I know Tom and Spielberg had a a great sort of. Um, i Have had collaborations on War of the Worlds and Minority Report, and Stephen's quite you know he's he's quite keen on on that sort of evolutionary style of filmmaking where you kind of you, you change it and adapt it on the way. It's because of Rogue Nation that I ended up in um, Ready Player One because uh, Stephen it was the bomb with the scene when I'm strapped up in the bomb uh, at the end of Rogue Nation. He he sort of said, "Oh, I saw you do that, and I, I I'd like you to come and do this," which is really nice. Wow. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess he's the only one, but it's really hard for me to, to say that because I'm so happy with where things are, you know, and how things work. I can't imagine it working any other way.
1: Yeah. Well, are you going to do another? I mean, have you, do you ever bother him
2: about doing another Tin? <laughs> I don't know. I, that was always going to be a sort of handover between him and Peter Jackson. Right. I don't know. I think nowadays the technology has moved on so far. We probably wouldn't have to we could have a couple of actors do the motion capture, and we could just do the voices, which would be—I'd <laughs> be—I'd be okay with that. <laughs>
1: Whose idea was it for you to bite the pen when you say I'm on the computer in Ghost Protocol? Was that something you came up with, or was that a br- Brad Bird?
2: Oh yeah, that was. But I've always, I was I always think Benji's very orally fixated. Like he's always sticking, like always holding things in his mouth. He's always like, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that was probably me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's the implication, sort of that. All the characters were in trouble at some point before they were recruited for the IMF. Do you have a backstory for Benji or did McCory kind of say anything oh, yeah. related to that? It's such a big aspect of this movie.
2: We, we, we had this idea that Benji was, uh, he was a, a hacker and he was living in the UK and he hacked into a very sensitive U.S. database, probably the CIA, and was then extradited to America to be tried. And it was then that he got offered the choice because, you know, his skills were so, to have done what he did was so kind of like impressive that the IMF kind of recruited him on those grounds that he'd managed to hack into an unhackable database in America, which is how he wound up in the lab. And then when he was in, in mission three, when he was, um, guiding Ethan around Shanghai, he got so caught up in it that he thought, oh man, I want to be in the field. <laughs> so he, he, he submitted himself to the field pra the field training program. So that's that was that's Benji's kind of backstory as far as I'm concerned. I love that. The other thing was that he'd um he'd deployed a drone to to assassinate his teacher. <laughs> 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 but <clears throat> we thought that was a little too too harsh.
1: Benji's also encountered a lot of the IMF middle management, which we we always love, you know. Yeah. F- from Fishburn to to Alec Baldwin to you know, it's like it's a it's a nice tradition. Do you think that he's sort of you know minded his p's and q's to stay in there? I mean, that's a lot of talk about you know studio leadership. That's a lot of studio heads to to go through and yeah. be around.
2: I think ultimately, you know, because Benji, he'll always side with Ethan. You know, he's kind of uh, he's absolutely on. He, however rogue Ethan goes, and however much Benji will try and be the voice of reason, sometimes he's always on that side. You know, he he knows. He knows where his loyalties are. And he might worry a little bit more about, about doing kind of, you know, rogue stuff than Ethan does. But ultimately, he's definitely Ethan's guy.
0: Well, it's, And Alec Baldwin uh, was our last IMF secretary. Who's the IMF secretary now?
2: I'm not sure. It's interesting how the IMF has gone... Like in three, there's, there's definitely an IMF headquarters, you know, there's like a, yeah. you know, cause obviously when Ethan and, and Luther are there and they see Benji, you know, there's a lab full of people, but I think we've been trying to move away from that more or more recently uh, to being much more of the way that, you know, Carrie explain, you know, leaving word for a man kind of thing, which is funny, but obviously there are other IMF cells around because, there's the, the the guy who I'm sure you know the the guy in Amsterdam at the beginning. The actor's name is A James Phelps. Yeah, we, um, which is such is a strange... Yeah, as, incredible.
0: Yeah, as a as a nod to Jim Phelps
2: from the old show. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. But I mean, that's his that's his real name. It's not his character. Yeah, name. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. That's a, a crazy coincidence. Yeah.
2: So there are obviously other IMF groups out there, but I don't know how centralised it is anymore in terms of if there's a headquarters there, there are various safe houses and safe vehicles. And, but I don't think it's kind of what it was back in mission impossible three, where there was like, there was Larry Fishburne and he was the secretary. Right. Yeah, I don't know who the secretary is now. Oh, I feel like we probably answer more directly to the president now. Yes. Interesting.
1: And I wonder who that president could be. Did you spot her picture on the wall in uh, the DNI? Yes.
2: Yeah, that's very cool. I like the fact that one of the things I said to McHugh the other day after I'd seen it again was that when Ethan and Kittredge are having their conversation and they're talking about when, when Kittredge says this mission is going to cost you dearly, there's, it, Ilsa is in the background on the wall, her, her uh, profile photo. Yeah. And when at the end of the film, when Kittridge's his voiceover is saying about any of your team members being caught or killed, it's on Benji. So I feel like the audience, you know, if they if they if they pick up on the code that's currently being employed, they're going to be really scared for Benji <laughs> <laughs> at the end of uh, at the end of Vision uh, Part One.
1: Yeah, you're a marked man. Um, yeah, yeah. We again, we can't talk about this for another year. But we, when we saw you on set, it was a very different configuration of people. Can we say that? Is that is that? Yes. Yeah, and what is. What is that like? I guess <laughs>
2: it's yeah. It's difficult to talk about it without sort of being too spoilerific, but um, right. One thing that's really interesting is that is Benji's sort of seniority and how he's sort of um, gone from being this very very wet behind the ears kind of puppy to being very much a senior member of the team and much more of a leader. And that that is is really fun to play. Yeah, you know, because it, it's it's definitely a, a, a an evolution from where he came from to where he is. And in two, yeah, we see a very different sort of Benji. Well, he's still the same guy.
1: Right. But do you, do you feel like that kind of mirrors your own experience? Because there are so many new cast members in these two movies. Oh, and you are the kind of seasoned pro.
2: Yeah, because when we were shooting, you know, obviously, when we were in Norway and Tom and McHugh are always off working, like in the evenings, unless we have like a dinner or something, we don't usually see Tom and McHugh until we're on set. But we're all staying in the same place. So me... And, uh, and Rebecca and Haley Palm, Eastside, Tarzan, Shay, we're all staying, and then I'm the one that they all come to and, and say, "What's going on? You know, what the hell is going on? <laughs> when are we going to do this? And how is this going to happen? And do you think there'll be a script and all this? I get all those questions, so I'm I've I've been the sort of den mother of of the new gang as the as the person who's been in the show the, the longest, you know.
1: Love that. Well. Uh... Thank you so much for coming back. I can't wait to talk
2: to you about uh, about two when that happens oh as well. Yes. Get us oh into the
1: friends and family screening. That's what we really. That's what we're really angling for.
2: Yeah. Well, you are friends and family now, so I think that, I don't think that would yes. be difficult T-
1: from your from your lips. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Simon.
2: Yeah. My pleasure, guys. Thank you.
1: Charles, how you feeling? Feels like catching up with a good friend, don't you think?
0: It does. Yeah, it's great. I love that we're we're getting it. Simon knows who we are. We like ran into him a couple times in Rome, and he saw us, and he knew who we were. That felt good. He did. I love. He didn't that. call
1: security. Yeah, he did not. Yeah, call not security. this
0: time. No. Yeah, he he has stopped calling security when he sees us, which is great. It's a great feeling. Yeah, to get to is. that point with him. Uh, but yeah, it was really fun, uh, you know, hearing him talk about a lot of the stuff. Like you know, he talked about that script reading in Vienna for Rogue Nation in a hotel room where he and Tom and Rebecca and McHugh took five hours to get to page 12 because he was talking about Tom's process of, you know, we've heard now from a few people uh, talking about this now where, you know, when when he's like, you know, he says, I don't get it. And then they have to stop and like, make sure that everything works a hundred percent, that all the emotions come through and everything is working, you know, like a clock. It's all just like exactly tuned in. And he's like, we've talked about how how Cruz has that sixth sense for what an audience wants and needs. And so... I thought that was really interesting to hear, hear him talking about that 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 table read that they did um together, that script reading.
1: Yeah, that all the way through through production, he is asking what the audience will respond to. And we've heard him talk about it sort of like in the almost in the, the test uh aud- you know, audience testing phase, but to hear that it's it's there from the beginning is really cool. Yeah. You're right. That it's 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 always a part of the process.
0: Yeah. I also loved hearing about uh, him comparing Spielberg's shooting style to McQuarrie's. Because I've actually heard that from from from, some, from a friend of a friend who, like, they worked on a Spielberg movie in recent years. And the, they were describing the shooting style that Spielberg works, how he works when he's making a movie. And it sounds similar to how McCory works while making these Mission Impossible movies, which I think is really interesting. We haven't really talked about that on the show, but it was great to hear Simon Pegg just say it directly, that they have a similar... Kind of style of that, that kind of like, you know, that Tom Cruise has talked about when we interviewed him in Rome where he's like, you know, that's how he likes to make movies where it's how movies have been made for from, since the beginning where they're, you know, they're figuring it out on the set. They're finding what's magical on the set to to bring out all the best in everybody.
1: Yeah, it almost takes an improvisational element to yeah. make these these movies. Yeah.
0: Pretty amazing. It's really cool. And then uh he, also I thought it was cool to hear that that he was that Spielberg wanted to hire him for Ready Player 1 because of the scene in Rogue Nation where Simon's strapped to the bomb. Uh, that, that like convinced Spielberg to hire him. I thought that was really cool to hear. So cool. And and funny that we he that he doesn't know who the IMF secretary is either. I think it's interesting how these this movie the new one like kind of reinvents what the IMF is. Like, maybe there is no IMF secretary. Like, it's kind of almost like a, a reimagining of the IMF in this movie, just kind of how like, you know, they leave word for Ethan and he's not really like having as much of a direct boss. It's kind of like a, a ghost working for the CIA. And, uh, you know, it's and how they all have a kind of a new backstory now, too. It's interesting. Gotta have that fresh blood, Charles. You know what I mean. Gotta zip it up. <laughs> Keeping it fresh. Keeping it fresh. Uh, that's right.
1: Uh, yeah, that that was all fascinating. What else, Charles?
0: And my last thing was just that uh, we discussed that there's a tease of who the president is. There's a you know the picture on the wall. We don't say. Should we say for anyone who hasn't spotted it, or should we just make sure that people I think, know to I think look? Could we just make people to kinda, look. I mean, yeah. If yeah, if you haven't seen it or you don't know. In the in a certain scene at the beginning, when all the intelligence community is talking, make sure you take a look at the the wall, uh, the picture on the wall. That's all.
1: That's right, and you'll get another chance too in a few weeks when you can buy the movie on digital and freeze frame and zoom in and you know. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think that's it for us. Uh, I just want to remind everybody, if I could, that you should catch brand new episodes of Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, every Tuesday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, while you're there, like, subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps us out a lot. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can do that at Light the Fuse Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, You can follow the official Mission Impossible accounts, too, on Mission Film on Twitter and Mission Impossible on Instagram, I don't know. What else, Charles? Can we tease who's coming up?
0: Well, how about we just tell them right out who's coming up next? We've been we've been building up to this for a while. We're very excited about this interview. Should we tell them, Drew? Go ahead and tell them, Charles. I think they deserve it. Well, we've got one of our favorites in the whole world, editor Eddie Hamilton, who we've had on the show in the past many times. We talked with him at the premiere uh, for very briefly, I think in our first episode of the after the relaunch, but now we're going to have him for a long time to talk all about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 just in time for you to get that home video release and you can hear him talk all about the the amazing movie that you're going to have at home to watch. But, of course, it is still in theaters right now, so if you wanted to go catch it, then uh, you should do that.
1: Go catch it. And catch us next week on a brand new episode of Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast.
0: Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood, that's me, and Drew Taylor. This episode was edited by Luke Burson, with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds.